there's a very interesting quotation that I came across by uh, Eric Streisler in 1990 in a book uh, dedicated to the legacy of Karl Menger. Intellectual history is overgrown with myth. The preconceptions of successive generations and of generations preceding our own make it difficult to uncover the truth. We tend to be wary of myths surrounding the interpretation of political or even social history. As scientists trained in objectivity, many of us are, however, naively surprised when confronted with distorted interpretations of the history of our own subject. But as intellectual history is often closely linked with political and social history, the same ideological forces which weave and shape myths here may be present there as well. And that's sort of the moral of my story, I guess, uh, from, uh, from my uh, presentation uh, this afternoon. So I want to start out with uh, what my professors taught me uh, about the history of my uh, discipline. Uh, that a miracle happened in 1871 uh, when three men simultaneously and independently discovered two concepts that changed the course of economics. The two ideas were uh, briefly marginalism, the distinction between marginal utility and total utility, and subjectivism, or the subjective theory of value. Uh, And then modern economics, according to this uh, story, is built on the foundations of these uh, uh, this dual foundation discovered by these three uh, people. It's called neoclassical economics uh, because it contains something new and something old. Uh, the new are these two ideas, and the old is the social coordination story of, uh, of classical uh, economics. Okay? Uh, so that was what I was taught uh, to the extent that I was taught anything when I was a student, and we now know that this story is pretty much uh, uh, wrong. Uh, uh, Gosen and others understood the distinction between marginal and total utility uh, long before 1871. The Spanish scholastics, the French physiocrats, and others, uh, maybe even the young Adam Smith, understood the subjective theory of value, again, long before 1871. Uh, And then uh, Jaffe, in a really insightful article in 1976, pointed out that uh, Jevons uh, Volross and Menger really had quite different perspectives on the nature of economic theory or the nature of economic uh, inquiry, even though uh, their views are often uh, homogenized, at least in the standard uh, telling. And, uh, and a more accurate story, I suppose, would be that most of what people understand as economics today really is Valrasian neoclassical uh, economics as opposed to Javonsian or uh, Mengerian. Uh, not uh, surprising uh, news, I suppose, to anybody in this room. Um, why does this matter? Well, I think it matters for two reasons. Uh, first, after 2008, it's been a hard, hard slog for economics generally. The credibility of our discipline has suffered. Uh, there have been all kinds of uh, criticisms of neoclassical economics uh, uh, in the scholarly as well as in popular uh, discussions. But this criticism doesn't differentiate among these competing uh, alternative neoclassical uh, traditions. Okay? The second reason that I think it matters is because of uh, the, the, the weakened state, uh, the disheveled state of economic methodology over the past 25 years. One of my uh, hobbies is I study and, study and write about and teach about economic methodology. Uh, and economists are probably more wary than ever about any sort of claims of scientific status for our, uh, our discipline. Uh, so this presentation uh, is uh, an attempt to uh, focuses on what I think is the neglected economic methodology uh, of Karl Menger, founder of the Austrian school. 
and I, I'll speculate a little bit at the end about how the history of economic ideas might have been different had Menger's ideas in 1883 been taken more seriously than I think they have been. Okay, uh, Karl Menger, there he is, born in 1840, uh, initially studied law and political science. He did all kinds of things, but the thing that I've highlighted is uh, he was what uh, today we might call a commodity market an, uh, analyst uh, for a while. Uh, before he turned to economics in 1867. And my understanding is that he was a bit of a problem student because he kept correcting his professors as they were explaining to him price theory of the day, and his correction always seemed to be based on, uh, well, I've just studied commodity markets for a considerable part of my life, and that's not the way prices actually get formed, and that's not what they mean. So in four years, he went from that to producing what I think is one of the most masterful treatises in economic theory ever, his Principles of Economics in 1871. Uh, in 1883, he published his investigations, uh, which is his methodology book, and that's mostly what I'm going to be talking about in my presentation uh, today. He was involved in this thing called the Methodenschreit, uh, this uh, dispute about uh, methods. Uh, he retired in 1902 and died in uh, 1921, and he was an avid fisherman, so that's why I'm wearing my fish tie uh, today. I'm an avid fisherman as well, so I have this sense of kinship with, uh, with Menger. Okay, uh, Menger's methodology. By Menger's methodology, I'm not meaning his method. I'm meaning more the, his philosophy of science, his science theory of economics, his theory of economic knowledge generally. Uh, and uh, the, question, the, the point that I want to make is, well, what did... Uh, what did economics look like, scientific economics look like, according to uh, Menger? Uh, and it turns out, uh, much to my surprise, as I delved into his investigations, I don't think that we can call Menger an a apriorist. We certainly can't call him a logical positivist, a scientific realist, an instrumentalist, or a dualist. And he certainly wasn't a rhetorician. In other words, he differed from virtually all the main views of economic methodology that are circulating, competing with one another today. Uh, and I don't think that his actual methodological views have received the attention that they deserve, uh, even among Austrian economists. Uh, Menger's, uh, in a nutshell, his theory of economic science is that uh, progress in economic scholarship takes uh, place as a result of the sort of rivalrous interaction among three branches. He called them orientations. Uh, and today, in, in kind of modern language, I think we might call these theoretical economics, empirical economics, and applied uh, economics. Uh, and I call this uh, uh, Menger's methodological milking stool uh, because none of the three elements trumped one another, that they were sort of uh, uh, complementary to one another. And this is a picture of a milking stool. My department's in an agricultural college, and I find I still have to explain to even some of my students and colleagues that a milking stool is a particularly unusual piece of furniture. It has three legs. And the reason it has three legs is because a three-legged stool in general is stable on an uneven floor like a barn. Okay. And uh, just like a milking stool, uh, Menger's uh, view of economic science had these three legs. There was the theoretical leg, the empirical leg, and the, the uh, applied uh, leg. Uh, and it was the, 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 the synergies and also the rivalry among those three things that made the stool, uh, in some sense, uh, work. Uh, Menger's theory of economic knowledge was that uh, in each of these orientations, each of these uh, elements, our knowledge of economic phenomena is always partial and it's always corrigible. And so in some respects, Menger was like a pre-postmodern 
when it came to his theory of economic knowledge. Uh, other aspects of his methodology, he seems to be quite clearly in the unity of science camp. In other words, he doesn't seem to maintain that economics requires its own methodology, that science has a methodology and economics uh, fits uh, in that. Uh, he does acknowledge that the subject matter of economics was differentiated from other branches of science, but that was true of other uh, uh, disciplines uh, as well. Um, and, a, and a very important concept uh, in Menger's methodology and also in his knowledge theory is this concept of complexity, uh, and that various levels of complexity are present in the subject matters of, uh, of scientific inquiry, and that will have implications for the relative importance of these of the three legs of the, of the milk stool. Okay, his, another view that he had on methodology was that scientific advance in general, uh, and in economics in particular, is episodic. He was almost Kuhnian uh, in that respect, uh, and that advances occur uh, in the three constituent elements at different rates and at different times. Um, so we might get stuck on one of the legs, and then a breakthrough will happen on another uh, leg. Okay, so uh, he called what he called the uh, exact orientation of theoretical research, or what I'll call theoretical economics, uh, he described as atomistic, abstract, essentialist, concerned with the question of, well, what is it that we're studying, and why is it the way that it is? Uh, and the goal of this orientation was to reduce complex economic phenomena to their simplest or atomic uh, elements, uh, and advances here occur through progressive improvements in the premises or in the logic uh, of derivations based on those premises. So an example, and this isn't his example, but it seems to me uh, it fits, is that, uh, that uh, Adam Smith's premise that there's a human propensity to truck barter and exchange as a theory of why exchange happens uh, represents uh, a less well-developed premise than Mises' premise, which I've paraphrased as every human action is an attempt to move from a less desired state to a more desired state. So that would be an example, I think, in the Mengarian tradition of how that progress takes place. But he makes this very important point that I think hasn't received as much attention as it deserves, is that exact research may not be able to fully, I'm going to say, deconstruct complex economic phenomena, at least at a given point in time. Uh, and so here's where this complexity theme uh, comes in. Uh, what he called the historical or historical empirical orientation of theoretical research, uh, I'll call empirical economics, investigates the individual aspects of phenomenon, uh, identifies uh, typical empirical relationships among phenomenon, and produces what he called empirical laws. These are different from exact laws. They're statistical uh, and, uh, uh, and, and this may be the only option available for certain complex categories of phenomenon. And his phrase was that empirical laws admit of exceptions. So they're, in a sense, sort of probabilistic. They don't always hold. He acknowledged that empirical laws were uh, unavoidably limited by the problem of induction, which he attributes to Aristotle, not Hume. Uh, and he also seems to be aware of the problem of theory-laden observation. These are sort of modern philosophy of science concepts, and also uh, of the problem of observational equivalence. So he was certainly very cautious about the uh, degree to which this empirical historical research could uh, produce knowledge, but nevertheless it was, uh, I think, a necessary part of his science theory. Uh, then he also talks about applied economics or uh, policy or the theory of finance. I'll call it practical economics, or maybe the modern term might be applied economics. Uh, and this is the recognition of practical problems and experiences and efforts to address those problems often give rise to knowledge. Uh, and I think this occurred in Menger's own career 
when he was frustrated with the way that economists of his day, his professors, were theorizing about the origin and the nature and the formation of prices compared to what he'd, what he'd observed uh, in his uh, experience with actual commodity markets. I think Menger's economics, looking back to 1871, are consistently a reflection of his methodology, his value theory, his theory of exchange, his theory of marketability, which leads him to his theory of money, uh, are all consistent uh, with uh, his uh, uh, methodology. Um, I'll just quickly go through this because I think this isn't news to anybody in this room. This idea that uh, value is subjective, it exists in human minds, it does not exist in the thing. Uh, and his extension of value theory back to what he called goods of higher order, his integration of value theory back to uh, concepts of uh, production. Uh, his theory of exchange um, is based on this uh, theory of value, which again uh, was developed uh, with uh, this atomistic uh, approach. Uh, in the process of, uh, do it, of developing a theory exchange, he rehabilitates the reputation of intermediaries uh, who appeared to not do any physical transformation to uh, goods, but nevertheless uh, made money from doing it. Um, his theory of the commodity, uh, based on his theory of the exchange, uh, was foundational to his theory of money, particularly uh, 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 metallic money in the form of gold and, uh, uh, and silver. Uh, the one aspect of Mises method, of Megger's methodology book which has attracted attention among modern uh, Austrians and others, uh, especially Hayek, is uh, Menger's distinction between two types of social institutions, uh, the intentionally designed or positive legislation institutions and what Menger called organic institutions, uh, and, uh, and his idea that uh, uh, organic orders uh, can we? Our, our, the mission of social science is to try and explain the origins and the function uh, of those organic uh, orders. Okay, um, he applied his methodology to the theory of money. Uh, money emerged before recorded history. There aren't any data, uh, so he developed his uh, theory of the origin of money atomically using his methodology uh, of exact uh, research. Okay. Uh, alternative history, I'm kind of working on this part uh, to, to kind of fill in what this would, uh, would look like. Uh, suppose we had taken Menger's methodology more seriously in the 1830s when it was produced. Uh, what would modern uh, economics look like? And uh, uh, it seems to me that uh, we would have avoided what I view as a centuries-long fruitless competition between theoretical economics uh, and empirical economics is those two branches of our subject struggled for supremacy. Menger's view was that neither one of them uh, was uh, preeminent. Um, and that theoretical economics and empirical economics would have existed in a relationship like the relationship between theoretical and experimental physics and engineering. Okay, so that maybe instead of the, the Big Bang Theory being about physics and engineering, it might have been about theoretical economics, applied economics, and uh, uh, an experimental or empirical uh, economics, and then we'd all be in a sitcom rather than doing what we uh, what we do. Um, so, so unfortunately, the milking stool that 20th century methodologists and economics ended up with is a milking stool that looks like this. One of my former graduate students read an abstract of this paper, and he sent me this picture. Uh, and, and in a sense, that's what we have. We have a one-legged. We have a series of competing one-legged uh, milking stools. Um, and let me just close with some examples, because I'm out of time, right? I have one minute? 
Okay, uh, I think that there are examples, uh, and some of these are kind of happy examples, and some of them are not so happy, of what I'll call Mangarian trilateralism, or the Mangarian uh, three-legged milking stool. Uh, Ronald Coase, I think, is an example. Most people don't realize this, but he began his career in agricultural economics, working on the hog cycle in Britain. Uh, but uh, later on, he observed that something called transaction costs exist. Uh, otherwise, there'd be no reason to form business firms. And then he looked at the microeconomics his professors were teaching him and said, there's no chapter, there's no section, there's no acknowledgement of, of, of transaction costs in microeconomics. Uh, therefore, there's something wrong with microeconomic theory, and that should be fixed. And as far as I understand, he maintains that position to this day. Uh, Elmer and Holbrook working, again, a couple of agricultural economists uh, who tried to estimate demand curves for agricultural commodities. Uh, they were applied economists, uh, but basically uh, discovered that sometimes when they ran these correlations, the demand curves sloped up and sometimes they sloped down. And nobody seemed to understand how that could be the case. Well, they discovered what econometricians now call the identification problem. They weren't uh, sort of theoretical econometricians in their own right. They were just trying to do some stuff. Uh, and then they discovered this problem, which the theoreticians then had to uh, acknowledge. And then my final example is George Akerlof, his uh, paper on lemons. Uh, the market for lemons was mentioned earlier. Uh, his uh, uh, counterpart, Eric Bond, is hardly ever uh, mentioned. But Akerlof produced this theoretical paper about the market for lemons. And the prediction, among other things, in that paper was that there would never, ever be transactions in used cars uh, anywhere in the world which is sort of a surprising prediction, uh, but it got him the Nobel Prize. Uh, Eric, Eric Bond said, well, I'm going to go out and test this because it was a theoretical paper. I'm going to go out and test it, and I'm going to test it in the market for used pickup trucks because if you're ever going to find a market for lemons phenomenon, that would be the market to look for it. And what Eric found is that, lo and behold, there's an extensive and well-developed market in used pickup trucks in the United States. So here's an example of where the trilateralism didn't work. Bond didn't get the Nobel Prize, but Akerlof... Uh, did. Um, so I think I'm out of time. So I'll, uh, I'll stop. <laughs>